0: Welcome back to The Feminist Agenda, where we explore what it means to be a professional feminist, how to bring feminism into your work no matter what you do, and we'll talk about how we keep our agendas organized. I'm your host, Veronica, and welcome to my cold episode, meaning I had a cold, so I don't quite sound myself. Seriously, though, this episode, I chat with my friend, Anne Elizabeth Moore. Her full bio will be in the show notes because there is so much, let me sum it up. Anne was born in Winter, South Dakota, and lives in the Catskills with an ineffective feline personal assistant, Captain America. Anne has written many books, including Body Horror, Thread Bear, which made the 2016 Tits and Sass list for Best Investigative Reporting on Sex Work, Cambodian Girl, Unmarketable, which was named Best Book of 2007 by Mother Jones, and found its way into the pages of a celebrity gossip magazine. Anne is the former editor of the award-winning punk planet and is the former editor-in-chief of the Chicago Reader she has traveled the world and received tons of awards and accolades she has taught at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago what I enjoy about Anne's work is that it always pushes me to push past my assumptions she has been key to my growth as a feminist and challenging when people use the term feminist, to describe their work and especially their organization. I spoke to Anne in October about her latest book, Gentrifier, which fits right into that vibe of challenging what labels we put on people, policies, and actions. In 2016, Anne was awarded a free house in Detroit. Soon that free house began to cost real money and the obligations to the nonprofit was costing her much more in career opportunities. Gentrifier is a tale of not just a white, queer, cis woman living in an immigrant Bengali neighborhood, but of government bureaucracy and how racism is woven into even the best intended regulations. It is funny, piercing with its insight into the wisdom of girls and will rip your heart out, sometimes all at once. I am excited to share my conversation with Anne.
1: Welcome to The Feminist Agenda. Today, I'm talking with my friend, Anne Elizabeth Moore. Anne, welcome. Hello,
2: I'm excited to be here.
1: I'm so excited to see you and to talk to you. So, you have a new book coming out, or is out now. I think it is waiting, my copy Mm -hmm. is Waiting, at Women and Children First. And so, we've been friends for a while. And in fact, my family visited you in Detroit at the house that is at the center of Gentrifier. So I remember when you were awarded the house and how excited I was that you were gonna have this house, very sad that you were living in Chicago, but the idea of you having this house for you, the cats, your writing, your work, um, just seemed really exciting and important. Reading through Gentrifier, I definitely laughed and cried a lot. Um, (laughs) You, really complicate the idea of home in the book. Um, You talk about your parents' house, uh, the house in Detroit, um, the empty lots that you see in Detroit and even in your neighborhood, in the Magali neighborhood. Um, What does home mean to you? There is a line in Gentrifier about Thurber being your home. And is that a feeling Was that a feeling that was centered on him or the feeling you have with your cats?
2: I do think that Thurber, which was a cat that I received um, from a friend in Chicago, he was about a year old when I took him in. And then he lived for another 22 years and was my closest companion that entire time and traveled with me across the country about eight times and lived with me wherever I lived. And no, we'd even like go on camping trips together and stuff. It was very intelligent, you know, tabby and um, <clears throat> talkative and all the great stuff that you might expect more from a dog than from a cat. So he's sort of a worthy companion. Um, and, and so there's a lot of stuff about him in particular that I do feel like, you know, just any being that is in your life for that long come to love and care about in a particular way. But there was the sense that wherever he was, he would make himself comfortable and he would therefore make me comfortable. The problem with then allowing him to be my definition of home is that he um, is no longer with us. and um, I, you know, want to be able to find a place that I am as comfortable as I was with him. I do feel now like I've sort of established a home for myself and I have a new cat that is perfectly reasonable. <laughs> but, you know, that was a very, Thurbo was a really special companion. And I do miss him every single day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't read mystery books, mystery novels a lot, but I felt like Judge unraveled like a mystery. You were awarded this house in... I remember when the project started thinking, this was a really cool idea to give away a house to a creative person. So they didn't have to worry about their home and they could just focus on their work. Again, the fact that you were one of the recipients was just really exciting for me. i it was just like, all of the amazing work you've already put out, like, wow, what could she do if she didn't have to worry about her home? Um, well, Uh, spoiler alert you did have to worry about your home still (laughs) and you don't get to the bottom or at least you don't reveal the end of this mystery of what this hot mess was with this organization that gifted you this house um gifted a few other houses out did you set out to write the book write your memoir in this mystery novel way
2: I mean when I Right. one of the reasons that I write is to give the reader the pleasure of learning in a way that I can sort of set up and then control and guide and, and make really enjoyable, um, which sometimes is a trap for making it really devastating. So, um, you know, people say that about my work fairly frequently, actually, maybe not the, the stuff in Cambodia, um, but, um, you know, Unmarketable had a similar drive and Threadbare had a similar drive where you're, you're kind of like aware the whole time that you're reading that something is wrong, but you can't quite place what it is and you can't quite get to the bottom. Um, a, another spoiler alert for y'all. It's always capitalism. Like it is always, always gonna be capitalism. But um, so, so those are like my tendencies and my skills. But the way that Gentrifier came together was um, was that I wrote these short little paragraphs that were sort of structured like jokes. And then as I began to play with them more as individual pieces and just really like cleanly lay out what the text could say and the portrait that I could draw of a city and of this house and of the neighborhood and of my neighbors, Um, I began to see that there were possibilities to tell a larger narrative through the placement of those. And so to some degree, you know, the drive to like create that compelling mystery is always there. And maybe like, I just didn't read enough Encyclopedia Brown when I was growing up, or whatever, and like Nancy Drew never quite did it for me. But um, in in other ways, um, I I got there in a different way than I usually do with my work.
1: Say that your work is devastating is absolutely true, <laughs> and that you do in so much of your work just build up and paint this picture and because i've read so much of your work i know that the cliff is going to come the bottom is going to fall out eventually in the narrative i just don't know when and it's very much like a roller coaster so thank, you, right. for those, oh, <laughs> thank you for those no thank you for journeys i mean you're welcome it's, an, it's, it's anticipatory and i'm reading it and i'm like this is so good but when 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 is capitalism Capitalism going to come in and ruin the day um, <laughs> where it's ugly head Yes. Um, that would be like Bugs Meanie in Encyclopedia. Brown, just so you, know. you talked about painting this picture of the city, Detroit, your neighborhood. Um, so there is this huge theme about Detroit not being a literary city and your attempts to craft and generate a literary scene um, within the city and even in your neighborhood. Have you gotten feedback from Detroiters on that? Um, as well as just talking about the, the struggle to try to like kickstart this literary scene, which I mean, that's how I found you. That's how we became friends, just being in this literary scene in Chicago.
2: You know, there's a couple different drives that, that come into to play in the same, at the same time there. And one is that, you know, I was an outsider that was brought to the city I am a white woman that was brought to a majority black city living in a you know majority Bengali neighborhood and. um, The city is structured around a notion of traditional families which i'm not uh, engaged in and heteronormativity which i'm really not engaged in and um, and so there's also this like general sense of isolation. And so one of the things about the literary scene in Detroit is that, you know, it, it's largely set up around poetry, which I, I'm, you know, there's a lot of ways that I could talk about my relationship to poetry, but one of them is that I'm just not good enough. You know, I'm just, I'm just not a poet. I'm not, I don't think that way. I don't write that way. I don't engage in that kind of making. Um, I literally do almost everything else. So that's not something about which I have any shame or fear, but it does mean that, that there were literary things happening in Detroit that are very active. And actually that the, the sort of Detroit writing milieu really coheres around that I just was never engaged in. But it's also true that as a white woman, a lot of those things um, were not necessarily open to my engagement. And that's, you know, not anything that I question or um, have any concerns about, but it does mean that, that I do, um, you know, that I, that I did feel pretty isolated as the kind of writer that I was. In this city, uh, on top of being the kind of person that I am, on top of being a white woman, um, and you know, again, like there's no reason to 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 be like, oh, it's hard, it's hard to live as a white woman in Detroit, because that's not really what I'm saying. But um, but it, but the very active and exciting aspects of the literary scene in Detroit were not things that I was directly involved in. For that reason. The people that you want to talk to about the very exciting literary scene are the other a house named winners, Casey mm-hmm. Rachiteau and Nandi Comer, um, who both continue to live in the city and crank out, like, active, really brilliant work on a constant, ongoing basis. Um, but, yeah, we just live in different kinds of literary worlds.
1: But your neighbors, who are major characters in Gentrifier, particularly the two young women. So these two these two young women, two girls, um, were all up in your business. And I know, you know, when my daughter was growing up, I tried to have her spend as much time with you as possible so that she could learn from you as well. Um, A (laughs) female? I mean uh you complicate all the things. And I like, <laughs> and it's great. And um, I just wanted, I wanted my daughter to be exposed to as many people who like to complicate all the things as possible before she goes off into the world herself. So what do you think that you taught your neighbors about feminism, about literaryness? Um, that's not the right word I'm looking for, but anyway, about being, readers and writers and creators
2: yeah it's um it's interesting because the entire plot of the book is actually hinged on um it it follows a storyline where these two young women Nisha and Sadia actually are the ones who know the answer to the mystery and so the arc of the story even though it's like 99 percent jokes and you know half a percent talking about my cats important things that happen in the story always come out of their mouths or always are dictated by their actions and so it was really important to me in writing in writing a memoir and this is kind of what i'm saying also about um you know, the relationship of me as a white person to my neighborhood and, and the city um, is that, like, I wanted to find a way to write the story that was not just the white lady complaining about her free house, which is boring and bad and not actually <laughs> a, worth writing a book about. So um so in various ways in the narrative I wanted to like pull back from it being a story about me or about anything I had experienced and not to tell the stories of Nishat and Sadia but to allow them to just guide my story so I don't have any idea to what degree that was successful but um I think that you must learn a lot about leadership when there is a 48-year-old woman that tells you as a 13, 14-year-old, you know, what's up? <laughs> you like, who used to own this house? Like what happened here? And um and so again, it's probably not so much about um what I taught them as as it is about um how how I like to engage with people, especially young women. Um now, you know, um what the the kinds of things that we discussed were elaborate, you know, (laughs) like everything about like how can you be a single woman living in the world and still um survive, which is a real economic question, I think, for especially women from bangladesh that have recently moved to the country um how can you survive in a city that is set up for um people to for women to marry men as soon as possible and have as many kids as possible especially when you know everyone else in your neighborhood um seems to be perfectly aligned with that is there a way to just be a A single person, a creator of art or text or a thinker, and live in the world and be happy. And um, hopefully, if I taught them anything, it was about like, yeah, you can be happy. It's fine. Like, (laughs) you will always
1: probably, these girls in particular, will always probably be happy, especially your work in Cambodia. Is centered on young women. Most of your work is clearly feminist in its core. Do you see Genderfire as a feminist book?
2: It's interesting because I do often, especially in the last 15 years, focus all my energy and attention on studying, researching, talking about, thinking through, and then ultimately writing on. Women's economic roles in the world, or, you know, per- particularly under capitalism, but um, sometimes in emerging economies, sometimes, you know, outside of capitalism. So um, that, by definition, is feminist. Um, but I'm also not someone who necessarily feels the need to identify as feminist because I first of all think um, that um, that we tend we tend to use labels a little too freely these days and they tend to really quickly get linked up with like Facebook ad algorithms right so if I identified with feminist as a feminist publicly on my social media profiles um, probably what that would do for me is get me a lot of interesting t-shirt designs right or um like there's a whole like line of products that that would put me in line with and i don't care about that stuff so that's not interesting to me to to identify with this label because the things that it does for me publicly are not that helpful um and on top of which taking that label or not taking that label doesn't necessarily change the way that I live my life so I get up every day I think about the women in my life I try to figure out ways of improving their situations to whatever degree I can. that's not going to change if I decide to call myself you know whatever is the actual opposite of feminist like murderous misogynist something something um So so I don't spend a lot of time thinking about labels, but I think it's really interesting when we start talking about race and women's economic roles and my situation with this house in particular, where, um, and this came up a lot in Cambodia actually too, where if I, assume or demand that this work be considered feminist, then there's a good chance that I'm, that there's something that, I, that I'm overlooking or that there's something that I'm not, I don't know how to explain it, but for example, in Cambodia, it was very, very, very difficult to talk about notions of feminism. I could talk about notions of women's rights. I could talk about women's access to, you know, various legal issues that they needed to, um, you know, gain access to or understand or um, um, unite around or organize toward, but really feminist was kind of another way of identifying as a white woman, which I tend to be pretty open about, even if there's a situation where you can't tell that I'm a white woman so um so i occasionally get that sense around gentrifier as well that that maybe the notion of feminism doesn't include a wide enough view of race that i'm entirely comfortable embracing um the other the other thing about that is that you know for me um, a a genuine notion of feminism is rooted in anti-capitalism. And a lot of feminist history is really about trying to gain access to property rights. And so f- imagining a way that feminism could work that is also about rethinking our relationship to property um, is super interesting to me. But I'm not sure that this is like the cultural moment where we can actually start having that conversation. So um, yes, hello, allow me to talk for 45 minutes on how complicated I feel about the term feminism and yet still at the end of the day, like am I gonna give every campaign I come across $5? Yeah, yeah, I am. Um,
1: Thank you for that. I always appreciate your, your stance and conversations about feminism. And what that means, where it's going. I know. I wish we could have more of them. What I appreciate about our friendship is that my nature is to try to identify the, the path of least harm. And having you as a friend, I've learned that that path is a very thin line. And your evisceration of Detroit and Michigan's handling of blight, quote unquote, is a great example of, I can't, I can't, decide if it's good intentions that are gone awry or terrible intentions that are, intentions that are wrapped in revolutionary language. Which do you think that is?
2: I strongly believe that the state and city governments of Detroit and Michigan, um, and even like the greater Detroit area And local city council people, I mean, occasionally somebody says something that's like, oh yeah, you should think about that. Like just yesterday, they decided to have, to change the lead inspection rate on rental properties from every year to every three years, which is nothing but a disaster. It will kill kids, it will stifle learning, it will, you know, be bad. Um, and only one of the city council people was like, well, maybe that's a bad idea. And everyone else was like, oh, let's pass this. So I believe that everyone involved is malevolent. And I'm just like, I don't care who gets mad about it. I think they're all horrible. All of them, from the mayor to the, I mean, Gretchen Whitmer is not as bad as the former uh, Rick Snyder, former governor, but um, she's a Blue Cross Blue Shield lady, you know, like she wants something very specific from leading that state. I think they're all bad all the way down. And I think that what they are doing is that they are making decisions, and Blight is the perfect example around who of their friends can make the most money. And then they are inventing a way of describing it and selling it to people. Um, that sounds okay. So, you know, there's a lot of corruption with like government, uh, not government, but contractors and people who tear down buildings and they have been allowed to like raise their rates in, uh, by unprecedented volumes in the last couple of years. Also, you know, this was even before the pandemic and, uh, and they are making all of the money off of this notion of blight removal, which is then being sold as this way of increasing property values for neighboring houses. Um, And that's, you know, something that, that like I could see because I'd spent so many years studying the marketing world where we're sold something that goes directly against our own health and interests and abilities to survive. Um, but it's really damaging, I think, the, the sort of talk around blight and this idea that like, you know broken windows theory that like, oh, if you have a house that is in need of repair in a neighborhood, the number one thing you got to do is tear it down as soon as possible. Um, I mean every, everything about that, if you genuinely think about it is untrue Was someone's home, they should make decisions about it. Were they evicted and foreclosed on? They probably were. Why was that? In Detroit and in Michigan, it was probably because they had their property taxes illegally assessed and they were, you know, being charged way too much and they couldn't actually afford to pay them. So, you know, it sort of always comes down to like if we just spoke to neighbors if we just talked to people we could figure out what the right answer is we could figure out that like okay we could pull that building down and we could build something new and we, we could potentially build a community center but but you know there are a, a million other solutions as well um and those should be made on a neighborhood by neighborhood basis I think um and not only to profit the people who make money from tearing stuff down and often you know like there's a whole ecological side of this that I never ever ever I couldn't even get into in this space that I had in the book where like a lot of this stuff is being torn down and um you know, the the lead isn't being abated at all. It's just being buried in the ground. The asbestos isn't being properly treated. And so we're actually just like dooming the whole block to poisoning uh, every every blight removal that happens. And so the problems kind of compound in a way that don't allow me to give them any leeway on whether or
1: not they're good people at all. They're not this is why this is why I love you because I think that we are the best and worst dinner guests <laughs> ever because someone will mention some sort of problem and they like oh isn't it great they're tearing down these houses and the neighborhood looks great and you're like well let me tell you and yeah there are so many topics pass like the wine later. and also and also <laughs> hand on my hand on my fist. <laughs> let me tell you yeah <laughs> Ever wondered why? Yes. Um, OK, so the last question I ask everybody is, you've got a lot of stuff going on in your life, a lot of projects, how do you keep yourself organized?
2: God, I knew this question was coming and I still couldn't come up with an answer. Um, <laughs> I I'll always, I do everything. And and you know this if you've read Gentrifier, but you know this because you know me. Um, I do everything on gut instinct. And that includes this notion of staying organized. And so it really all, which is kind of another way of saying like, I let my anxiety dictate everything that I do. And so um, I agree to a project and then I panic until the project is done. And the only real organizational strategy I have is like an old reporter's notebook that I keep next to my computer that has a physically written list that I jot down the thing that I'm most likely to forget. And then when I finally accomplish it, I cross it off. Um, A big, very exciting moment in my organizational life came when I moved into this house and I uh, blackboard painted an entire kitchen wall And now I basically just, I have two lists. I have like the life list downstairs in the kitchen on the blackboard. And then I have the like work list. And the life list is usually like dig up backyard or entirely renovate, you know, the garage or like fell a tree or something. It's all these like projects that are so massive that I have no idea how to begin them. So I don't spend a lot of time in my kitchen is what I'm telling you.
1: (laughs) I don't believe that because you're always making things and pickling things and all those sorts of things. That's true, that's true. true. (laughs) I don't spend a lot
2: of time looking at that wall.
1: (laughs) That I would believe. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for spending time with me and lovely catching up with you. And I can't wait to see you in person.
2: I am so delighted to have had this conversation with you and thank you for giving the book such a close read I was very excited to see what you would think of it and so I'm really, uh, you know heartened by your response to it.
0: Thank you so much, Anne. Not just for your time, but for your work and continued friendship. Listeners, get your copy of Gentrifier using my bookshop affiliate link to both support the podcast and support your local indie bookstore. You can also support the podcast by purchasing notebooks, sketchbooks, pens, and other journaling tools at Archer Olive. Use my affiliate link and my code Feminista10 to save 10% on most items at checkout. But the best way to support the feminist agenda is to follow me on your usual social media spots, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at FeministaCast. That's feminist with an A. Please share this episode on your socials. Subscribe at Spotify, Apple, Goodpods, or whatever podcast platform you're using to find me. And if you have feedback for me, hit me up on social media or email me at feministcast at gmail.com. That's feminist, no A, at gmail.com. Until next time,
1: keep feminism on your agenda, keep wearing your mask, and be your favorite self. Peace.